Welcome to Word of Truth, Word is Truth Christian Church. We're continuing where we left off. This is Doug Presley. It is 2-14-2021, and I'm going to continue with the thought of the week and prayer. Okay, thought of the week. God's solution to sin. There is a final solution to sin. We know that God is holy and righteous. We know that God hates sin far more than we ever could. God sees sin in all of its ugliness and horror. God condemned the entire human race for one sin from our first parents, Adam. All sins are rebellious against God, and we are offensive to him without knowing it. For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? I think we will never see the end or mortality of sin the way God does. What our call to see and believe in God's solution to sin, the atonement by Christ. Since Christ was judged for the sins of the world, that is not the sin that is hindering men from receiving God's salvation. Since the sin problem was solved, anyone can receive the salvation by grace. We cannot earn or deserve it. We are born lost in Adam. Once you understood and believe this, we are ready to trust the work of Christ on our behalf. Our solution to fix the sin problems are not sufficient. We must trust God and his provision for us as the only final solution to the problem of sin. Over 2,000 years ago, God knew every sin you would ever commit in your life. Even though you were not born, the Father imputed all your sins to Christ and punished him until he was satisfied. We certainly, we certainly did not know that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, meaning not commit people's sins against him. Did you know that your sins were never counted against you? Now, fast forward to the year 2021, and you were committing these actual sins that were treated to Christ and judged. What is your attitude about your sins? I hope and pray it is the same as God's attitude and its solutions to the sin problem. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Do you see him? Well, this other week should make it absolutely known to whoever's reading this or whoever's hearing this that God already solved the sin problem. His solution to sin that, like in Second Corinthians chapter 5, where our sins are never imputed to us. And the fact of the matter is that it was finalized when Christ was on the cross and 
Christ said, it's finished. Tetelestai, which means the same as it's finished, that for three hours, God the Father, and how he judged Christ, he was a substitutionary. Um, he did a spiritual death among, uh, among us on the cross. That sin was the final solution. The, the fact of the matter is, some people believe it, some people don't. The question is, do you believe this? So this is what I get out of thought in a week about God's solution to sin. But now we had, we'd like to hear the wife give us a prayer so we can get forward to the word of God. Go ahead, the wife. Thank you very much, Steve. Yes, I'd like to offer a prayer on everyone's behalf. I will be praying for our families, of course, and, and people we encounter, local church and worldwide church. Are there any other special requests? Yes, uh, this is asking for a prayer. Uh, we just about finished the website, the church website, which is wordistruth.com. And I'm praying that uh, others will receive it and it will be received well. All right. Thank you. All right. Let us, let us bow our heads before God. Dear Father, thank you for this wonderful opportunity that we have to come before you again. Um, you've, you've blessed us with um, you know, the time and the resources to be able to meet each other so that we can love one another and help each other and to encourage each other to grow in truth and grace and in Christ. I pray for our church, those on this call and those affiliated with the church, and anybody who has ever visited the church. I, I pray that you would be working in their hearts. If they are non-believers, bring them to believe. Let the Holy Spirit convict them of the work that Christ has done on their behalf and the gift that is free that comes from God. For those who are saved, I pray that they would be eager to grow in grace and truth and to mature in the word that we have been given. And I pray also that our website, wordistruth.com, would, um, would reach out to people and be well-received, meet them where they're at in seeking the truth and not, not being satisfied um, with the uh, with a word that might be twisted in some religious organization, and um, help help others not to put their trust and faith in man, but to put their trust and faith in you. And I pray that you would um, care for those, watch over those who are um, facing challenges with health, finances, or whatever the case might be. Uh, you know everybody's situation in detail, and you you know your your purpose. We know your purpose is good, and that you will work out all things for the good of those who love you. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dwight, and thank you, Dave, as well. We would like to continue where we left off last week. We're in verse 21 today of John 15. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. So we have notes, and in your notes we have Jesus came to the Jewish 
religious leaders of his day, and they rejected him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him, John 1.11. For Jesus, the task was not only to live righteously and die for the sins of all mankind, but also to prepare these 11 frightened disciples to face the same irrational opposition he faced. The disciples needed to know why this suffering would come. They would have to endure it. But Jesus said, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. John 17, 15. Ultimately, their rejection and hatred hinges on the Father and His eternal plan. So we'll dig into the verses that we have. Hopefully, as you can see, developing a theme around why the, who the disciples are and what they had to face, but also uh, who we are and what we will have to face as we are in the battle. So let's dig, dig in. The first thought is, uh, we're going to take it the first phrase, they will treat you this way. A few points in that. The first one is, uh, what kind of way is that? Persecution and hatred. If you look at just where we are in John 15, that is the context. I'm going to turn there. John 15 and 18 through 20. Stand by. 18 says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. So the hated is one of the results of what it means that you're not of this world, I took you out of this world, you don't belong to this world. And then verse 20 is, Remember when I told you a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. So there is the persecute part. And um, so we should know when we, they will treat you this way. What do we mean by they will treat you this way? Well, Jesus meant they will, the world would hate you and those in the world will treat you in terms of these ways, persecution. And the persecution is vigorous. So we should identify who is the they, this point B, who is the they that is spoken of? They will treat you this way. It, is, it primarily refers to the Jewish religious leaders. Now, I could say to the religious leaders, but there are all kinds of religious leaders in the world. I just want to be more specific. The Jewish religious leaders. They're the ones that are in question here. So... If you look at John 16, 2 and 3 is a good indication of what some of the persecution would be. That's just in the next chapter. So let's look at that. So John 16, 2, it says, um, they will put you, well, let's look at one. I like the thought here. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. Now, so we know all of this is not just for your information, but Knowing that they're going to persecute you, knowing that they're going to treat you this way, should help you understand that you are not going through this alone. There are others who are going through the same suffering you are going through. 
And the reason for it is this. So this should give you a leg up as we talked about before, right? So, so some understanding. Doesn't always relieve you of any suffering. God is not saying, I promise to deliver you from every suffering that you would ever face. No, that's not the case. In this world, you will have trouble, he says. There's no doubt about that. He's not saying, oh, <laughs> once you believe in Christ, all things will be just fine for you. No, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But, you know, eternally speaking, you're going to have eternal life when you believe in Christ. It's free. It doesn't cost anything. And as you think about that eternal life, then you know that no matter what happens in this world, you will live forever with God. And that is more uh, important. That is one of the most important things that we can talk about, whether you're saved or lost. That's a big deal right now. That's something to think about. Um, this is part of our calling. We are called uh, for those that all men might be saved. That's the first part of it. And to come to the full knowledge of the truth. So those two things are important. Not just, oh, that we come to the knowledge. We don't put the cart before the horse. That all men be saved is the key. So that's in, uh, important. And then there's uh, Isaiah. So so who are these people who will put you out of the synagogue? Oh, did I even read that? No. <laughs> Sorry. They will put you out of the synagogue. So obviously these are people who are in authority over the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. So this is what religion will do, right? It's their, their thinking is that if uh, you are opposing them, then it is their duty to kill you. This is going to be how they look at it. So remember, this is persecution. And the persecution is not just, well, you know, we'll just give you, call you in and give you a slap on the wrist. Not at all. It is that we're going to possibly kill you. Now, we can know that uh, religious persecution in history has been awful. It has been terrible. I mean, uh, even if we just focus on what has happened to the early church and through all of the, uh, the Roman Empire and all of the persecution they brought to the church. And then we're talking... Uh, the Roman Catholic Church and all of it, the persecution over the, the, I don't know how many years and how many Christians have died under the authority of the Catholic Church, the Inquisitions and such. So this is just history. We can read this. This is not something I'm coming up with because I don't like, uh, you know, what history said. I'm just recounting what history said. They will do such things because, this is verse 3, because they have not known the Father or me. So they're going to persecute you. They're religious leaders, yes, but it's because they have not known the Father or me. So, so more on this whole religious leaders thing. I want to turn to a passage we haven't read in a while. It's Isaiah 28, 14 through 18. Dust off your Bibles there. Isaiah 28, 
And let's look at verse 14 through 18. So it says, this is about the tongues thing, right? A lot of people don't know that tongues today is a prophecy. And that prophecy is found in Isaiah 28. So listen, if you are talking about tongues and you are not talking about what happened in Isaiah and how God, what God said tongues was, then I think you are misinformed. So we need these verses because they deal with what Paul said uh, in the law. It is written by men of other tongues and other languages, I will speak to this people. And, and yet for all this, they will not hear me. Yeah, therefore, tongues are for a sign. So if you don't understand those words in 1 Corinthians 14, well, you, you, it's, you're missing some important information about what tongues are for. Anyway, so in the midst of that chapter, where God talks about what was happening to the nation Israel at the time, they had become a nation of drunkards. Even the priests and the prophets, in verse 7, stagger from beer and are befuddled with wine. They reel from beer. They stagger with seeing visions. They, they stumble when rendering decisions. Now get this next one. I, here's one. I couldn't handle it right here. I would have to depart because I have a weak stomach. Just uh, this is not information you need. But all the tables are covered with vomit, and there is not a spot without filth. So this is a very low point. And this is we're talking. You go to the, the priest and the prophet, and what are they? They they're drunk. They're supposed to be telling you what God said. And here, they're probably rambling out of their mind and what their drunkenness has influenced them to say. Terrible in the nation Israel. So God's saying, I'm, I'm going to deal with this. Don't worry. So look at verse 14. We're, we're going to get down to it. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers. Now notice, who rule this people in Jerusalem? So the prophets and the priests, that's the religious leaders. And these are the people who are not leading the people correctly. So God is pronouncing judgment upon them. This is what he says. Hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. You, you boast. We have entered into a covenant with death and the realm of the dead. We have made an agreement. And when an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us, for we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. So Israel, these Jews uh, here, thought that there was nothing that could touch them, no matter what. They're saying, hey, we're God's chosen people. In fact, there's some some scriptures that talk about in Jeremiah. It says, if you can count... The heavens above, if you could look up and you see all the stars, and if you can count them, then, he says, I will cast away Israel, which for all they, the terrible things they did. And then he says another time, he says, if you can count the number of uh, grains of sand on the seashore, then will I cast away Israel from being my people. So listen, Israel took those promises and said, no matter what happens, we're good. No matter what we do, it doesn't matter. God's never going to cast us away. But it was all based on the fact that 
Hey, God didn't, didn't say he wouldn't discipline you. God didn't say he wouldn't deal with you. So this, verse 16, is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. And the one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. So now, what is this stone? He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ coming to Israel. Well, at the same time we're talking about as we're looking at the words of Christ in John chapter 15. Right? He says, I'm going to set, you know, uh, I'm going to set a stone, lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. And the one who relies on it will never be stricken to panic. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge, the lie and water will overflow your hiding place. It goes on and, and talks about the difficult time. He, but he's dealing with the judgment that's going to happen to Israel. And, to, to, and it's because of the leaders uh, who refuse to listen to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot more scriptures that you can reference. Luke 21, you know, is a good chapter to, to read as well. But um, there's a paper on the website, wordistruth.com, called Whether There Be Tongues, They Shall Cease, and where I have dealt with uh, all of these things in detail. So I refer you to that for the full context. However, let's continue. Right, so that's, they will treat you this way, Right, and this who's they? It is these religious leaders, right? And then so First Corinthians two, six through eight. Let's look at that. It's another uh, reference. First Corinthians two, six through eight, says, "We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age, nor or of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing." So the rulers of this age, who are the rulers? Is it, you know, the president, the senate? No, it's talking about at that particular time. And who is he talking about in particular? Pilate, Caesar? No, he's talking about the Jewish rulers, the Jewish religious leaders of that day. So then it goes on. How do we know for sure? None of the rulers of this age understood it. This is verse 8. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So who, who was the ones who instigated getting Christ on the cross? The religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day. They condemned him. In fact, they said, this man commits blasphemy, and they brought forth witnesses that could not corroborate the same story. And they finally said, we don't care. We we. That's it. We just want him dead. In fact, they really condemned him even earlier than that. As we, I think there's a passage we'll read later that just talks about what happened when uh, Lazarus was raised from the dead and they came together as a result of that and made some decisions. This is even before he, he was tried. So, point C is further to this point. As far as the gospel, here's, here's a quote from Romans 11.28. Just to be sure we know what we're talking about. As far as the gospel is concerned, 
they, who's they? It's the same they that we've been talking about in our verse. The religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, are enemies for your sake. But as far as the as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. And that's Romans eleven twenty eight. So this is talking about unbelieving Israel. Not so much the whole Israel, because God does have a remnant within Israel who came into the church. The Apostle Paul is one of them. But So he's not talking about every person who was ever Jewish. That would not, because it doesn't depend on that. It depends on whoever, whoever believes in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's the thought. So they're, so Paul is pointing out they're enemies for your sake right, right now because they don't believe the gospel. And they not only are they not believing of the gospel, but they put Christ on the cross and they crucified many of his followers. And uh, this attitude of persecution continues to exist today, uh, but not so in the same way it did and it's shifted. It's not quite the same, but this is what was happening at the time of writing. As far as the election concerned, they are uh, loved on the account of the patriarchs. So how are they loved in their enemies? Because God's call and his, um, his what he has called those, uh, those who were elected and predestined, that's irrevocable. So even though God hates what these people are doing, they refuse to come, come around to what the plan of God is. Uh, God is saying that, yeah, Israel still has a purpose. And that's what we need to understand. That it, even though right now it looks like they are be being very resistant and opposing to the church, they're in fact enemies, God still has a plan for national Israel to come and fulfill the purpose for which they were called. So we should know that. And uh, so this is, gives another thought as we think about... Uh, you know, love your enemies. You know, God tells us to love our enemies. You know what? He loves his enemies. And he, he called the Jewish people. Uh, he called Israel. And Israel, right now, for the church, is an enemy because uh, they refuse to accept the position and direction of God. And uh, But God is saying, don't worry. I still have a purpose for national Israel, which is in that same chapter where he says, this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins and so forth. So let's keep going. So they will treat us this way. Why? Point number two, because of my name. I know this looks like a lot, but it's just a quote, most of it. So let's just read. What does it mean because of my name? And so here, uh, here's a thought. A name designates a person. When I say that, I mean, you know my name is Doug, right? You know who I am because I have a name, right? I'm not just that one uh, or, or some other person, but I'm Doug, right? And we could say the same thing about you. You have a name. So every a name does designate a person. However, in scripture here, the name here represents a special person who carries the title and authority that person has. And it could have been that that person has been given as well. So we're not just identifying 
a particular person when we say a name. Because a person could say, well, what's your name? And you say, oh, my name is this. And they say, okay, I'm going to try to remember your name is that. But it doesn't have any more significance beyond that. But here, and, and of course the Bible does use a name that way as well. And his name was this, and his name was that. And But here, it's a particular uh, distinction being made about the name. So let's look at it. Uh, it has to do with a person that carries a title and authority that person has. So some thoughts could help us here. So I, I tried to put, a, put together a couple things. Because of my name, right, the title given Christ or Messiah, that's what Christ means, you should know. Uh, it means Messiah. So when we say Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name. Christ is the designation of his authority and his title of who he is. Jesus is not Jesus, son of Joseph, right? If we just say, oh, who is that? Is Jesus the son of Joseph? No, that's literally identifying who that person is. Maybe there's two Jesuses. Maybe there's a Jesus who has, who's the son of Simon or something. But this Jesus is the one who is the son of Joseph. But this Jesus is the Christ himself. Right? So that's what's unique about this person who is Jesus Christ. And we say Jesus Christ. So John 20, 31 has a scripture that will help us understand even more. So let's go to it. It says, but these, all that John has written, these letters, are written so that you may, be you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So, so it's not just Jesus Christ, but that Jesus is the Messiah. Messiah is more so a title. It's not just, oh, this is my name, right? And this is where in English we sort of uh, fall short un until we get the understanding. You know, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Uh, you should know that that name carries with it a title, a, an authority, a designation that God has called that person to. Jesus is the Messiah. And it wasn't just like, okay, I'm going to be named a Messiah. No, it was the fact that he performed all the miracles necessary. It was the fact that God sent him, God the Father sent the Son, so that he would have this role as the Messiah. He was designated as God's only begotten Son, or the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. So you can't have life in, in my name or somebody else's name. You can only have life in his name. And what do we mean by his name? I mean, his title, the fact that he's the savior of the world, the fact that he paid for all the sins of the, and, and demonstrated when he came here that he was, in fact, the person that God promised to send to the world. So he's the son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. So that's important as we look at, um, you know, the first point here. Second, let's move forward. This is just a thought. And I know this could be a can of worms, and I will try not to make it a can of worms. Uh, I will just, just say this right, and give some of my thoughts here. So the Jews use the Hebrew name, which is Yeshua Hamashiach. Right? This is what they say, which means 
Jesus the Messiah. They, they feel it is important to keep the traditional language in place rather than using Jesus Christ. Yeshua, which is Jesus, and Hamashiach is Christ or Messiah. We say, they wouldn't say Christ. They would just say Messiah. So now just before we get into this quote that I got from this website, which is Christianity.com, um, I just would note that I've had experiences with Jews. And these are, listen, most Jews today, uh, I wouldn't say most. <laughs> Let me just back up for a minute. A lot of Jews don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They, they don't believe that. So they would not speak of Jesus as Yeshua HaMashiach. They wouldn't. Uh, they would speak of Jesus as an imposter. But the Jews who believe in Jesus Christ would say that Jesus is, is that person. They would use that name for Jesus. Just so you know, there's not every... But, but the Jews that don't believe in Jesus will say that he is yet to come. He, didn't, he wasn't that one, but he is yet to come. So there's a distinction among Jews, you should know. So, but, but the ones who do believe that Jesus is the, the Christ or the Messiah, they speak of him in these terms and with this name. And for them, that's very important. So I want to just give you point number three as I preference it, is that uh, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? To say, the, and this is a quote from the Christianity.com, to say that the Bible and ancient Greek culture rubbed each other the wrong way is an understatement. From the Maccabean revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes IV to the Sadducees absorbing one too many Hellenistic trans traditions, those in Jesus' day and beyond had a sore spot when it came to the Hellenization. According to this article, Jesus' name from Yeshua Hamashika got Hellenized from Greek from the Greek word Isus or son of Zeus. This, of course, would be a far cry from proper theology if we took Jesus' name to mean son of Zeus. <laughs> Zeus, son of Zeus. After all, Antiochus Epiphanes IV desecrated the temple by putting a statue of Zeus within it. The idea that Jesus' name came from anything related to Greek, the Greek pantheon would have been repugnant to Jews and Christians alike. Of course, Jesus' name may have also been a transliteration. After all, they wrote the New Testament in Greek, and so not all names will translate using the same letters across alphabets of different languages. In Latin, the Latin transliteration took the Greek Isus and changed it to Iesus, which uh, we get English, the English version, Jesus. It is important to note the distinction between a translation and a transliteration. It's important. Christianity.com, and there's the website where you can read a lot more about it if you like. Uh, I hope you understand where I'm coming from by quoting such an article. And one, one of the things I'll just say is, 
early in my Christian experience, uh, as I got out there on the web and started mingling with people around the world, I met a lot of Jewish people, or Jews for Jesus, uh, you know, as they might be called. But they, they were very particular about calling Jesus by these names, Yeshua. And so I remember one of them asked me, we were like on this chat group and they asked me, well, what do you, what do you, what, what do you call him, him? And I said, Jesus Christ, do you believe on the Lord Jesus? Or something I said, oh, did they jump on me? Like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Oh, you're so far away. I mean, you just don't know. And these were Jews trying to tell me that uh, I was using the wrong term and I should be using their terms. So I thought, man, you know, and so they basically just they didn't really want to even hear anything else I had to say, because in their minds, I was caught up in some, you know, false thinking because I didn't even know that his name wasn't Jesus Christ. You know, I just I, 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 I that took me back a minute. I thought, why would they say such a thing? And it made me look into this. To say, well, what is my opinion? Am I really using the wrong name for Jesus Christ? And I, I had to think about it because of their reaction. And I did think about it. And I came to some conclusion, conclusions. I don't know if I've ever shared them at, at this juncture, but uh, we will now. So point number four. Okay. No, or is it point number three? Where are we? No, no. We're point number four, right? So the question is, does this, so, so does it matter that we use the name Jesus Christ? We, it's a fair question, I say. Don't just, oh, what do you mean? That's crazy. Of course you can. In my opinion, no, it does not matter. Why? The focus is on who Jesus is in any language. So this is what I, conclusion I came to. So because I don't speak Hebrew, but I, it doesn't matter what I call Jesus Christ, as long as I understand who we're talking about. We talk, we're talking about Jesus, who is the Christ, the one who was crucified under Pontius Pilate, the one who died on the cross, who, who was raised on the third day. Uh, that's the one I'm talking about. Which one are you talking about? If you're talking about some Zeus or something, then no, that'd be wrong to say that who Jesus is from some Greek um, translation or transliteration. We need to understand who Jesus is according to what the Word says. Now, of course, um, they, they didn't even want to go down the road with me on that, but the point is, it is who. Now, you could be Chinese, and so however they say it in Chinese, what does that mean you got to learn Hebrew? It is not about learning particular words. Salvation is not in whoever says the, the magic word shall be saved. It is the understanding that the Holy Spirit brings, and it may bring that to you in any language on the earth. And as long as you get that understanding, and you understand what Christ did, and he's the Savior of the world, then you can have eternal life. Then you can build on that life so that you will know the full knowledge of the truth. So it is important to understand who Jesus is. 
in any language, as I say, point number four. So let's go to point B in our notes. I don't want to get bogged down in, in this rabbit hole here. Scripture examples where the name designates the special person from John 17. So if you go to John 17, we can read a couple things, and I'll rush, go right through them so we can see. And so in verse 4, he says, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. So I said, certainly this is a special person from the Father. This is not just anybody. Nobody could just say this. I mean, Jesus is saying, yeah, I'm here. I'm doing the work. I finished the work you gave me to do. This is literally that Jesus is somebody. He, he has a role. And it, it is an important role that we think about when we think about he's the Savior of the world. Brought you glory on earth. So let's keep going. Point, point number two is, is verse 11. I am coming to you, Holy Father, Protect them by the power of your name. And the name you gave me. So the power of your name. Well, what name is that? The name you gave me. So that they may be one as we are one. So I say the power of your name, not just Father. The one in whom we have our eternal purpose. <clears throat> That's the power of the Father's name. It is the fact that all things were created through him, right? God, <clears throat> excuse me. God the Father ordained that all things be created. I want to turn to Hebrews. I know that's not in your notes, but Hebrews 1 is a good example. Hebrews 1, 1 says, In the past, God, and here it's talking about God the Father, spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, that's important for us to know about the, our communication, right? God has been communicating to us. But then it says, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. So the plan of the Father included making the universe, but appoint, but also appointing Christ heir of all things. So, listen, the fact that he appointed Christ heir of all things, he has the same name or purpose or title as God the Father. So God the Father may be the originator of the plan, but all things have been given to Christ, who is the Son. All things have been given to him. Not only that, but all creation... Christ is, all things are created by him and for him. But all of that has been authorized by the Father. So that's what he means. Protect them by the power of your name. Right? This is important for us to know. And then, uh, not just <clears throat> here, where it says not just Father. When we say the power of your name, we're not just talking about, oh, he's the Father. But, but the one in whom we have our eternal purpose. The one, right? This, 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 is, this is the name you gave me, the Son, in whom the Father invests everything. Right? This is, so when you th same thing we just talked about, how the Son inherits everything from the Father. He's talking about Roman-style adoption. And this is one, as we are one, in the, in the phrase, and I say, wow. Because 
and I say church age alert. In other words, you need to know that's unique. That prayer, what's in that prayer is unique. In this way, Jesus is one with the Father, and we are one with Christ. So that name is carried not only from the Father to Christ, but it is carried from Christ to us. We are the ones on the ground that are executing God the Father's eternal purpose. As I said it before, as we live and breathe, we are those sons that he is bringing into glory. So, if you read that over again, I'm, you know, it's been a little confusing. It to, so, you know, even from my point, just kind of take some time, read over it. So I'm going to read it. I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. That's what the text actually says in my comments. Power of your name, not just the Father, uh, the one in whom we have our eternal purpose. The name you gave me, Son. Is, that's the name of Christ. He's the Son of God in whom the Father invests everything, right? He says, everything I have, I'm given to you, right? the whole purpose. Uh, like he says, he will take from mine. Everything I receive from the Father is mine. Everything the Father has, Christ says in John 16, is mine. One as we are one, and, and, that, and that means that in the, in the way that Jesus is one with the Father, we are one with Christ. So, Quite interesting. In verse 12 of John 17, we also have this. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. So the Father ordained that Christ would keep the foundation right, of the disciples and apostles safe. I say disciples slash apostles because you know they became the apostles or the foundation of the church. Uh, for the church age, it was part of his responsibility as the Christ to call them and those who believe their message as sons into glory. This is including us, 1720, which we, I didn't actually write, but I have referenced plenty of times. So you should know that by extension, he's not only talking to the disciples, but he is talking to us as well. So uh, this is, these are how to use or how, what does it mean by that name and the power of that name? Listen, nothing as we have been reading in Romans 8 can thwart the power that God created all things for this purpose. I mean, if God did that, that, that has ultimate power in and of itself. Nothing can stop what God's eternal purpose is. It will succeed. So point number four, B4, is there are more passages to consider. Let's look at a couple of them. John 14, 13. There was more. There's a lot more, in fact. I don't know if we're going to cover every single one, but we'll start. John 14, 13 says, And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So that literally, that's talking about just what we said. If you understand what it means now, what name means, then you understand what it means to whatever you ask, notice, in my name, 
in the title that I have and the authority that I have from the Father. And if you do that, and I'm able to, I give it to you so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So verse 14, you may ask for anything in, in my name and I will do it. So notice, in my name. What does that mean? That you just said the name of Christ? No, it has to do with the authority of, the, of your understanding of who Christ is and what the authority of the Father's plan is. Of course, if you ask anything according to his will, he will do it. He will do it. Why? It's the most important plan in the entire world. There is no plan greater than this plan. This is the Father, the God, the reason why he created all things in the first place. So then you got verse um, 26. 26 in John chapter 14 says, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. There we go. So the Holy Spirit doesn't come independently of the Father or Christ. He comes to accentuate what the Father and Christ have done. He will teach you all things and remind you everything I have said to you. So there, there's another verse. And then 1516 is the one. Uh, we're in John 15. So what's 16 say? 16 says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you might go and bear fruit, fruit will, that will last. And so whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. So notice the integration of this analogy. Father is the, the gardener right, and the vine. And, and then he gets all the way down to verse 16 because he's talking about love and, and the true motivation for our spiritual life. And he's whatever you ask in my name, that's important because it deals with the authority, the name that Christ derived from the Father. And what's that? He's the heir of all things. He's the son. He, he's the Messiah. All of those things are part of who he is when we talk about his name. Uh, and then there's other scriptures in Acts chapter. We're, we're not going to go through all of these. It would take too long. So, but I'll, the ones in Acts are very good. I wish I could cover them, but this could be for further study for yourself. Philippians 2, 9 and 10. Uh, and listen, I'm not saying the ones in, in Acts are less important to our understanding. Philippians 2, 9 and 10. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place. Why? Because he did all this for the Father. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him a name that is above every name. And that, and so what is that? A title, right? He's authority. That's what he's talking about. That at the name of Jesus, right? Not just, we're not worried about what we call him. We just under, better know who he is. That every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So this, and then there's this last one in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. I will read that. 2 Thessalonians 3 and 6 says, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. So when it says in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that means not just by our authority, but by his authority that we do things. He is the Lord, right? 
his, he's not just any person. We don't just say his name. We know who he is. That's what's important. And, and when we're thinking about this concept of when Jesus says, they will hate you because of my name. So consider that. So let's keep going. We, we still haven't conquered. Let's keep going. Uh, the name carries the authority of the Messiah. Right? It carries that the authority of the Messiah. Christ will, and when we say the Messiah, Christ will supersede Satan and physically rule this world. So the resistance comes from the top, the God of this world, the Prince of this world, as he is also known in Scripture, will be superseded by Christ. You know, uh, so a couple of scriptures, Second Corinthians four four and John fourteen thirty, talk about the titles given Satan. Those are titles. He's the prince of this prince of this world, and that's a title given Satan. And he is the ruler or the god of this world. Now, those are titles. But you know what? He will not have those titles. Christ came to supersede him, and take over this world. All right, so let's keep going. Point number three, for they do not know the one who sent me. Uh, this this is big, so we'll, we'll dig right in. The religious leaders were resisting Christ. Their resistance was not logical. It was from Satan. And here's a John 11. Let's look at this. When I say it's not logical, I mean it's not even reasonable. John 11. So the verse verses in question are 45 through 51. So let's just look at this. 45. This is where, after Jesus raised Lazarus, who had been dead four days from death, when he raised him, he, he basically resuscitated him, and Lazarus came back to life after four days there is rotting of the corpse and um, certainly in, in the temperatures that they had in the desert. So you would think four days, it's done. Right? But no, Jesus performed a miracle and was able to bring Lazarus back to life. And so then it goes on in verse 45. This is the aftermath. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him, right? Well, this is a great thing. Right? This is what we want. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. The Pharisees are the religious leaders. So the chief, then, verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. So now we're getting the Sanhedrin involved. So this is the not only the religious leaders, but the religious leaders who also were a part of the political ruling uh, party of the Jews, the Sanhedrin. It says, what we are, and this is what they said, this is part of the conversation that we have in the meeting that they called. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Now, that's a bad thing? It's a good thing. Right? No, 
everyone believing that's the point, right? Jesus is the Christ. That's why he was performing these many signs and wonders. And, and they were supposed to say, oh, just like Nicodemus thought. He says, we know that you must be from God because no one can do the things you do except God is with them. So they understood that. So this is why um, they came together and it wasn't to put their faith in Christ. It was what is said in the, pre the next verses here. So let's say he's performing many signs. We let him go on like this. Many people will come. But in verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will take away both our temple and our nation. Now, what are you worried about the Romans when you got God on your side? What, what, what can the Romans do? I mean, you are God's nation. And they didn't really have the full authority to function as a nation. They were under the rulership of, and thumb of Rome. They were, in fact, one of the things where they were being heavily taxed by Rome. So it, this is what gave rise to the zealots. This is a form, another Jewish uh, people who gathered together and said, we're going we're gonna to throw off this Roman bondage and we'll do it physically by militia groups and going out and you know, stalking the enemy and guerrilla warfare and such. So this, this, is, this is what one of them said in verse 49. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. So they assumed that the whole nation would perish. And that became a part of what they considered truth, but not the part about how they should sacrifice Jesus, right? As a result, they're saying Jesus is a problem. He's not the solution to the problem. So you do not, So this is what Caiaphas said. Uh, you do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. Now, when he's saying Jews, Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, he's not saying for the sins of the world. He's saying as a sacrifice, as a martyr, as somebody who literally, uh, you know, we're going to sacrifice him. Even though he didn't do anything wrong, we're going to let him die because his death will appease the Romans and keep us politically where we are. They're, where they are is under the Romans' thumb. They're, they're not a nation, per se. They, they are still a nation, but they are under the thumb of the Romans. And not only for that nation, but for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So what did they do? Verse 53, from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. So it, it goes on, but as you can see, this is illogical. This is not rational thinking. This is the leaders of Jerusalem coming together to make these decisions, not just, well, 
John and Fred and, and uh, Joseph came together. Who are they? Well, they're just people. But no, these are the leaders, right? The, the ruling party in Jerusalem. The common folk in Jerusalem looked up to them and as speaking for God. And they decided that they would kill Jesus. This is public execution of Jesus. They wanted to get rid of him. That was their thought. And terrible thinking. And all of this, they were resisting Christ. Their resistance, as I said, was not logical. But Satan was inspiring all of this. So point B, since the Father was in Christ, representing his plan and teaching, right? That, that's what we have. The religious leaders were rejecting God. So there's a couple thoughts when we say that the Father was in Christ representing his plan and teaching. Jesus is saying in John 12 that I, everything I say is what the Father told me to say, exactly what the Father told me to say. He not only told me what to say, but how to say it. So it, it's literally the Father's teaching here through Jesus. But the religious leaders rejected it. And I want to read a skirmish that happened in John 8, 38 to 47. John 8, this is a tough chapter. Um, 38, he says, I am telling you what I have seen uh, in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. And they came back, Abraham is our father, they answered. If you, and Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you're looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. And this is what he says. This is what they say. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to, the fa to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Wow, this is tough language. Uh, whoever can any, and then he goes on, but I, I would say you should finish the rest of it. It's tough language. So we'll we'll continue in our notes. We're we're getting there. He says uh, in point number C, religion blinds us to God and his direction. The religious leaders' motive is to please men and the world and maintain power. And has that changed much today? The answer is no. If you think about what was happening in their day, it hasn't changed much. It's literally the same thought. Religion is still blind. God said this, they don't care. It's their way. And what makes them feel more comfortable in terms of their position in the world, the wealth, the people, control, power, all those things are important to religion. 
So at point D, Peter had religion firmly embedded in his thinking. Listen, don't, don't be so dismissive of religion without examining yourself. You may have religion in you that, that needs to be uh, fleshed out. So take some time to look at the scriptures and understand how religion is it, it's blinding. Right? That's why God, through Jesus, said, blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will be clean. Right, so, so Peter said, this is what uh, but it said here, get behind me, Satan. This is what Jesus said to Peter and Matthew. You are a stumbling block to me. And here, you do not have in your mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This is what religion is about. Human concerns. It's not the mind of God. This is what, not what God's plan is. It's, it's what man thinks and what man would think is in, in important. So even though Peter understood that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, he, made, he had the right answer. He's, and Jesus said, well, the Father must have revealed that to you. You certainly don't understand. Because then he later said, when he began to unfold what the plan of God was, Peter rebuked him and says, don't even talk like this. This is horrible thinking. You will never, this will never happen to you. Thank God it did happen to Christ. And that's why we're here talking about it today. It's because Peter didn't have the mind of God. He had the mind of man. So, point E, for us to fulfill the Father's plan, we must respect the Father's plan. We are not of this world. So, how do, I mean, listen, Romans says it so clear. Romans 6, and we'll quickly go through it, 2 through 4, he says, By no means we are those who have died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? This is a, uh, from the question, what should we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? In other words, shall we continue in the sin nature like we always did and let grace keep on increasing over us? No, <laughs> that's not. So verse 3, 2 and 3 gives us the reason. We died to sin. How do we die to sin? That's through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And we're getting ready to read that here in verse 4. We were therefore buried with him, Christ, through baptism into death. That's what it means to die to sin. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live the new life. So when he says he was raised through the dead through the glory of the Father, what is that? That's the resurrection life. That is the life that we have. That's the new life that we have. And, and we think about that. That new life takes us out of this world. We are not a part of this world. This, now, of course, living it uh, is done with cognizance. It is not done in ignorance. That's why it says, what, did you, did you not, were you not aware of this? Or don't you know that this is true? Right? But Paul raises the question because a lot of people have that question in their minds. They need to work through it. So then there's Colossians 3, 1 through 4, which says, literally, uh, 
since then, you have been raised with Christ. We just read about the fact that we've been raised with Christ, right? We identified with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. We have been. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So, so these are things to say, what should we be thinking about? What should we be keep our minds on? That's the Father's plan. Not earthly things. This is beyond earth. We were chosen before the creation of the world. There's a purpose that we have that satisfies what God wants. And it happened. This, this desire happened before time began. So we, we have to think about how that all works. Point F, why did they not know the one who sent Christ? This is for they do not know the one who sent me. And I say there is history here. So in Acts, right, this, we should read this, the history of why they did not know. And it still follows along the same lines of what we've been speaking of. Acts chapter 7, 35 through 39 says, This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself. But that's what they said. Who made you ruler? Through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise you, raise up a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. And with our ancestors. And he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him in their hearts and turned back to Egypt. See, so this is what happened. They refused to accept the word of the Lord. So what is Stephen saying about this? How, how does he... Uh, understand this he to go down we know what happened you know Stephen died so go to 51 and it says uh, you stiff-necked people your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised you are like your ancestors you always resist the Holy Spirit was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute they even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You, have, you who have received the law that was given through angels, uh, you, you, but have not obeyed it. So this verse, or verses, these verses tell us the history it is not just something that these religious religious leaders did. It started way back early. Now, when we talk about Moses, we're talking about the calling of the nation, right? The nation was formed under the, the Mosaic law. And there, there was a stubbornness, this resistance to the words of God, even then. That was a bad start, bad foundation. Point G, 
Today, many are not seeing the direction of God at Pentecost. They are not hearing the spirit of truth and ignoring, ignoring and resisting God's eternal purpose. This is what's going on today. You talk about these things, people's eyes glaze over. You start talking about the, the, the unsearchable riches of Christ. You start talking about the calling we were chosen in him. And they come up with their own opinions and refuse to budge from them. They want to open their hearts to the spirit of truth. It is just uh, not logical at all. So I will close with this one thought. Jesus says in John 13, 20, Very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. That, that gives us authority. We are chosen in Christ. Right? This is... We have a role. So when he says, whoever accepts anyone I send, accepts me. So that means those who are in Christ, those of us who have the authority that Christ has given, like by the power of the Father's name, you have that same name, and now we have that authority as well. They accept me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. So you, you see, the Father sent Christ. Christ sends us. We're in the world now. There is instruction for the disciples. Well, the, just know it's not about you. It's they hated me. And they hated me means they hated the Father. They hate the Father means they hate the Father's plan. So I'm hoping and praying that as we are out here in this world preaching the gospel, preaching not only the good news, but the full knowledge of the truth, that there will be people who believe, who, who have humility toward the spirit of truth and not the spirit of resistance that uh, plagued the history of the Jews. Let's bow our heads and we'll continue with this thought next week as we close. Thank you, Father. What a privilege. What a joy to be able to go through your words and to understand the distinctions and even the nuances that are found there are full of meaning for us. Thank you for Christ and everything uh, that he did is an example to our lives. We are just like he was. So we, we pray um, as we approach these chapters, these verses, that you will give us wisdom, that you will keep us uh, humble to the spirit of truth, that we will not develop into religious stubborn uh, blindness, and that we will continue to allow the word of God to, to be our guide, allowing it to correct us, to rebuke us, to train us in righteousness. All this we ask in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.